Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. The extended edition for Patreon supporters this week is a right bumper edition. There's an extra 20 minutes for Patreon supporters this week. So head to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe. More about that from Robin in a minute. But two little technical things to let you know off the top before this episode... The first thing is Josie wasn't uh, available when we recorded this episode, so special guest co-host for this week is Natalie Haynes. Natalie has obviously guest co-hosted plenty of times in the past uh, when Josie was off on maternity, so it's great to have her back on the show this week. And also to say, you might remember, uh, especially if you are a Patreon supporter, that this episode was supposed to go out live uh, on our Patreon channel with Robin and Natalie and Mark Steele. But on the day, we had loads of technical problems. Uh, So the recording got put back and back and back. And in the end, we had to cancel the live stream, unfortunately. But we did get to record later in the day. But a couple of those tech problems hadn't completely vanished. Mark was having a couple of problems with his connection and iPad. So just be aware that there's a little bit more like crackling and that sort of thing in uh, this episode than there would be normally, only on um, on uh, Mark's side. So it's it's quite intermittent, so it shouldn't detract from your enjoyment of the episode, but just wanted to flag it up in case you thought your speakers or headphones had an issue. They don't. They're fine. The problem was at source. Anyway, enough of that. Here is Robin and Natalie and Mark. Hello. Uh, Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Today, Natalie and Robin's Book Shambles, because uh, I'm joined by Natalie Haynes, author of Pandora's Jar. Um, I'm going to mention a quick couple of things before we get started, one of which is thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters. Um, As you know, we don't have adverts and things like this. A lot of uh, podcasts have enormously long preambles. I'm going to give you a slight preamble today. Um, We really need to get up to less than 2% of the people who regularly listen to our show, uh, supporters via Patreon or any other way. Uh, I realise some of you aren't able to do that, but if we can get that up to um, 5% of people who listen to our shows uh, or watch our shows um, supporting us, then we're in uh, a reasonably uh, good place uh, as opposed to quite a precarious place. Uh, and if you do sign up to Patreon, there's loads of extra stuff that we do, um, including there's the Uncanny Hour series with uh, Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Reese Shearsmith and Sarah Morgan and Kayla Janice and lots of others uh, about many things like Dead of Night and uh, and Deathline and the films of John Carpenter. And there's also a new series of conversations that I'm doing with people like Nicole Stott and and uh, Andrean and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman. Again, that's that's especially for uh, people who support us for our Patreon. Book Shambles will hopefully always be available to everyone. But like I said, if you can help us out, if we can get up to 5% of our um, viewers stroke listeners supporting us uh, at Cosmic Shambles, then it makes a huge difference to us, especially as none of us are able to do our normal job, which is uh, touring. So thank you very much. If you can help, 
welcome to the show. There, uh, We don't have to give you a message from a bank uh, or a soft drink or anything else for the time being. There might be messages, but there'll be messages from the beyond. So there'll be deceased banks and that kind of thing. Um, Natalie, it's great to have you here. Uh, the, the, now, the last time we, we spoke on something like this, it was Pandora's Jar, which is a fantastic book. Can you just tell for nice. anyone who might not um, know about Pandora's Jar? I didn't even know about it being a jar. I mean, literally from the title <laughs> onwards, I'm, I'm in, a, in a revelatory state. Yes, I can. And I am sorry to people who've heard me say this a hundred times already. Pandora doesn't have a box. She doesn't have a box anywhere in ancient literature. There are no visual representations of her with a box on uh, any ancient artworks at all, described or surviving. Um, what she does have sometimes, but only sometimes, is a jar. The box is a mistranslation by Erasmus. So literally 2,000 years after Hesiod writes the story of Pandora, Hesiod writes it twice. Um, once no mention of any kind of receptacle at all. The second time she has this jar, pithos is the word in Greek. In some versions of her story, the jar is full of bad things. That's the version that we all know. In some versions, uh, Theognis elegies, it's full of nice things, but we forget about that because that would enable us to hate her less. Um, in some versions, uh, the ones that we all know, she deliberately opens the jar box out of malice. Um, but in some versions of her story, one of the versions told by Aesop, for example, of Fables fame, it's her husband who opens the jar. Um, but she never has a box. The idea of her malevolently opening a strong box and letting everything evil out into the world, that all comes down to Erasmus, who um, uh, the Dutch polymath and scholar, who takes the word pithos in Greek, jar, which is a really unsafe place to store all the evils in the world because they're very narrow at the base and they're made of terracotta um, and you know fat at the top. So uh, intrinsically unstable, and I know of which I speak. Um, and he mistranslates it. He translates it um, into Latin as pixis, which is a box. And within about 30 years from doing it, you start seeing artworks where she's shown malevolently opening this box, which has got straps around it. She's really making the effort, come on all horrible things, get out into the world. And that is how misogyny works, Robin, just in case you were wondering. See, I still wonder, you know, as a member of the patriarchy, whether it was misogyny or whether it's merchandising, because say it you're doing a big merch. tour about yeah. all the evils of the world and yeah. you go, these jars are really tricky to make. It would very be much easier if we had yeah, the boxes at a merch store. stall. Yeah, I mean, it's fair if you go and see, um, almost any museum in uh, Greece or in Italy with ancient things in it, the terracotta jars that they have will be wired and attached to either the, the wall or the stand that they're on because they have earthquakes and they're not very stable things. So it's, a, a, it's an abysmal idea. But I think it's just, I think it's just mistranslation because um, Erasmus has form. I'm sure I've told you this before, but we say when we talk about somebody being blunt, that they like to call a spade a spade and that is from Erasmus. Um, but it's a mistranslation. The Greek word is scaphair, which doesn't mean a spade. It means a hollowed out thing, like a vessel that you might use to sail in. So in fact, what he's really saying is he likes to call a canoe a canoe, but we don't say that. So, you know, there it is. Um, I like that. Better. I think it's I better, isn't it? One. Yeah. It's, it's quite, it's more expressive and, and um, a bit surreal. Well, I agree, of course, because I mean, the, the idea of bluntly describing lovely. something as a canoe is just a really unusual combination of things. So, yes, I agree. Now, we're also joined by uh, Mark Steele, uh, the, uh, the the polymath activist, I think I'll have you today. Uh, scar loving polymath activist and uh, cricket obsessive uh, Mark Steele. Yeah, I'll tell you what else I am, Robin. I'm someone who likes to call a canoe a canoe. Oh. There it is, you see. This is how it begins. 
Yeah, but I tell you what, he's a liar. I've seen him call a kayak a canoe, and I've seen him call a narrow boat a barge. So let's not go down that route. Um, this is where it all unravels. <laughs> and Mark, I should say, actually, in terms of mistranslations, rather than mistranslations, you're also an inveterate liar, aren't you? Um, one of my favourite things about yes. you is that whenever you do, uh, or certainly you used to, I don't know about, about so much now, but the, the number of different reasons that you became a comedian because you yes. asked that question so much in local newspaper interviews. Well, yes. Well, this began, I'll tell a very quick version of this. This began, well, the first time I ever did anything like this, was on, I was asked to go on Midweek, Radio 4's Midweek, a long time ago with Livy Purvis. And uh, a researcher rang a couple of days before and said, oh, uh, now we want to ask you how you got started in comedy. And I said, oh, it's not interesting. It's just like everybody else. You just ring up a couple of places and you go and do it. I don't know. Oh, well, come on, tell us. And I said, well, that's just not interesting. So as a joke, I said, oh, well, I can make up something interesting. My father was the manager of a vodka factory in Poland. And uh, and what, and every year at Christmas, I used to accompany him to Katowice and we, uh, because he had to make a speech with all these Polish diplomats. And uh, and then some one year uh, I, I was with him. I was about twelve, and they asked me to to sort of say something as well. So the only thing I knew in Polish was a joke, and it went down so well. They all said you're really really funny, and so I got um, I got asked to do a regular twenty minute slot in Polish uh, and a tour of vodka factories. I don't know. I said that, and that was it. You know, and I thought I'd been silly and amused myself. And then about three days later, I was on live radio midweek in the morning and Libby Purvis said, Mark, you had a rather astonishing beginning to your career, didn't you? And I, I said, not really, Libby, I haven't forgotten I've done this. And she said, well, Mark's being a little bit modest. He speaks Polish. And so, and this went out to everybody. So uh, then I started collecting all of these dark stories. Yeah, all sorts. And, they, and people do believe them. I told, I, I told one that I was scared of flying and, the, and it used to calm me down to tell jokes. And once during some really bad turbulence, I told quite a lot of jokes and it calmed everybody down. And the captain, as a result, asked me to do a regular 20 minute slot on the London to Dublin shuttle service. And, um, and that went out in the newspaper. Well, the, the, the I good thing trumors. is. That's the word, isn't it? For a kind of really benign lie, a tumour where you just start a completely it? trivial. I, I did this for years. I think Robin might know this already. Right. <laughs> this is a, the, easily the stupidest thing of, I think anyone has probably done in this category. But for years, I told people for literally no reason at all that Howard Reed, our fellow comedian and all-round genius, lovely man, his dad was a dentist. His dad is not a dentist. His dad was a financial advisor, I think, at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just it meant it took a really long time about two Edinburghs or three Edinburghs before somebody came up to him at a party and said, oh, hi, my dad's a dentist as well. And he was like, Ains! I was just, I was so pleased. It was just the most benign story to tell. But that's quite, yeah, but you, I can understand people believing that, but no one can believe my star stories. I mean, yours are more easy to get tripped up, surely, when the, you know, well, Polish diplomats start I think it's still on Wikipedia or something that I used to be a television repairman. And, uh, and that we were advised when we were uh, taking someone's television away in the old days, if it was so bad that it was going to need repairing back at the office, that we would leave them entertainment. <laughs> so that they would feel a little bit entertained to last them through the sort of forthcoming televisionless days. And, and so I used to tell these jokes and uh, there was a competition every month to see who'd done, see who'd done the best joke. 
and three consecutive months I won Television Repair Man's <laughs> Joke of the Month award. And <laughs> there this are is so many holes in that truma. story. <laughs> it's just no idea. It stands up to no interrogation at all. But also, no, I, I, I like for you no, want it to be I mean, true. I've got. I wish I'd sort of kept the newspapers with them. There was oh marvelous what uh, thing that they believed. Well, I'm not saying my thing was marvelous, but just marvelous that they believed it. Which was that uh, I used to play football for. Well, someone said, oh, you used to live in Swanley or something. How did you get started? So I said, I used to play football for Bexley Academicals. I made up, obviously made up name. But I was really, really useless. But people really liked the jokes that I told in the dressing room. So I was kept on to, to be in the dressing room and tell jokes at half time. And most weeks, we the team would be 3-0 down at half time. And then I'd tell all these jokes and it would liven them up. And we'd win 4-3. And uh, that got printed as true. There's just, there's just, there's a thousand reasons why that's, there's so many flaws in that. I know you, as a story. you used to run a car ferry, I think, and then you told so many jokes and they, people used to actually deliberately just decide to go across the river, drive their cars. I remember that one, just so they could yes, hear your brain sets and you take ferry, them back yeah, and forth. Yeah. And then eventually you were so into it one day you crashed the ferry and because you lost your job you went professional. I, I remember that that's one. Right. There's definitely some yeah, you've done that's... as a roof mender, I think. There's been a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, I have got, I've, got the, I've got the one. It's in the Maidstone advertiser. I've still got that upstairs. That. <laughs> well, the... Uh, um, should have, your first book was it? Note, notes, notes uh, from a runner bean. Was that the first one? It, it's not a runner bean. It was I wrote a not book. A it's not a runner bean. Yeah. Which was just um, that was such fun writing that book. I got uh, barely any money for it, and there was a bloke called Jim Driver, a wonderful bloke, who used to promote uh, music acts mostly, and he lived in Forest Hill in a in a sort of little basement flat, and he decided to just publish books. And I had this idea. I said, oh, I'll just write a little series of sort of things about doing stand up around the, in the circuit in them days and the clubs and stuff. And how it would and how it gives you a little insight into the world. So like I did one about doing there was a chapter about doing a gig in Belfast right in the, day, the dangerous days before the just before the Good Friday Agreement and stuff. When it was, there was a gig there that was pretty mixed in the centre of Belfast and stuff. And it was anyway stuff like that. And he said, yeah, 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 go on, do that. So I wrote, and then and then if a bookshop ordered it, then he would just get four copies and put it in his in his bag and go up and deliver them himself. You know, this it was that low key an operation, but it was that was great fun. That yeah, I've, that. I've... it was called. It's not a runner bean because in the sort of I don't know, right in the the peak Thatchery time of about nineteen eighty eight, uh, I did a corporate gig and. Uh, it was it was this advertising executives and everything about it. it was like if you did if you filmed this you would go oh that's just too cliche but they were just so drunk there was food everywhere that they were all throwing at each other and uh and eventually you know you were well, we all know these sorts of things it was just hopeless and eventually i just thought right well i'm i've got to abandon this and i i did say and then someone, uh, and then someone threw uh, a runner bean at me, and I said, "Well, we've proved there why it is that it's you people that have got all the money in society and not miserable, useless people like nurses, isn't it? Because you're capable of throwing a runner bean." And this bloke got up and went, 
it's not a runner bean, it's a monge too. <laughs> and, and so that was the name of the book. It's a lovely book. I remember. I remember buying that. it when I've I've two copies. I have the first version, and then I think it was brought out again. But do not press. Was it do not the do not press? Or yeah, yeah. that was it. That was the bloke. Yeah, yeah, yeah lovely man. Yeah. And it's uh, well, we're gonna. We, one of the main reasons we're gonna do this actually is to talk about a book that you contributed to, um, which came out the last book that I bought before first lockdown in in a bookshop, um, which is uh, Jeremy Hardy speaks volumes. Which is a collection of uh, Jeremy's kind of predominantly his his stand up uh, with various people's memories of him and one one of my favourites actually you, you write the kind of uh, introduction as does Jack D and um, uh, there's there's uh, Jeremy uh, Anthony Hamilton's uh, Anthony Hamilton Andy Hamilton's piece which I love Andy Hamilton uh, writes one of the great sadnesses of writing these reflections about Jeremy is that I won't get to hear him complain about them mm. and I thought <laughs> that is such a <laughs> Yes, I mean this. This was a. It's it, it's a. Re- I mean, it does work much like Linda Smith's uh, book as, as as well. This this um, the stand up stands up, and there is the, we we've, we've talked about this before, Mark. But that that language, that delight that Rory Bremner remembers that it, Rory, Jeremy was apparently always complaining about his cooking, and he would say things like, mm. "Oh, look, Rory's made a liver meringue pie." Now, a liver yes. meringue pie to me has the perfect rhythm. Of the worst kind of, uh, you know that that just that phrase alone, and he had this tremendous yes. command, didn't he? Just this, this. Yes, and he he would jump straight to it. Yes, quicker than anyone I've ever known. Really, he would go jump straight to those phrases. Like there's a brilliant little routine that I'd never heard actually until after he died, and the, and it was put out in a sort of compilation of things that come out. And he was talking about these people who moved to the countryside from London, and then complaining about the local people making a noise and stuff. And he said they would, um, and the, there was just one little phrase used when he was sort of impersonating this chap. And he said, he said, I am trying to have a perfectly reasonable morning playing the harpsichord to my falcon. <laughs> and, and the harpsichord to my falcon is perfect, isn't it? There is no instrument and no bird that would be better. And, uh, and you know, some of us would get to harpsichord to the falcon but he would he was very very quick at it i think he found that sort of thing easy a bit like certain people in sport who sort of find it easy and can't understand why everybody else is sort of spending six hours practicing cricket in the nets or spending all afternoon practicing their forehand volley or whatever and and there's some people who just find it easy and i think jeremy was a bit like that really uh, but that's why, Robin, you're quite right that it works as a as a book. I didn't think it would. I have to say, I've sort of tend to think, oh, stand up is stand up, and books are different. And if you'd written it as a series of articles, that would be different. But I think I'm happy to say I've been proven completely wrong because people really, really like this book. Do you think oh, was... Sorry, can I ask a oh, question yeah. of the two of you? Because you both have a tendency for absurdism that I'm rubbish at. Um, is that the harder thing to capture in print? I find myself wondering if maybe that's the the bit, because I always feel a bit like you said you felt when this book was suggested, Mark, that stand-up is stand-up. Mm. It belongs, mm. in my mind, between the end of the microphone and the, the end of the shoes yeah. of the person in the front row. That's where stand-up exists and everything else. It's yeah. like pinning a butterfly to card. It, it's a beautiful thing, mm. if that's what you're into. Clearly, I'm afraid of butterflies, but let's put that to one side. Um, but it's a different thing. 
um, it's a you know a, a still record of something which was once breathing and alive. And I kind of feel I felt this. I think I reviewed I can't remember which of Stuart's books, but I I know he was aiming to get this incredible. Um, routine uh, to such a point he says in the book that it, it doesn't need any performance at all and it's like I completely right. see what you've done but I really feel like you're underselling what an absolutely mesmerizing performer you are it's like yes yeah. the material still works but the kind of the magic that is you know whether we call it context which makes it inappropriate but extraordinary to say something at a certain time or whether it's that sudden capacity to grab a phrase out of midair it just it changes it, doesn't it, a little? I, I think... I think so. Yeah, come on. And, I, you know, and I'm sure I would sort of... I'd be the same with, with Stuart. I'd think, oh, no, don't... Stuart's quite capable of writing things to be read, but that wouldn't be his stand-up, I don't think, just plonked on a page. But then I did think that with Jeremy. I think You can hear Jeremy, their voices, can't you? Because they're such yes specific kinds of performer with both of them actually you can really hear how they sound as you read them well i think with stewart's yes. thing there's that interesting by having these enormous footnotes by actually being a presence within his stand-up so he keeps walking onto the stage in those books and explaining all manner of different mm -hmm. scenarios narratives or tangents and i think that's in in that way that's part of the thing that then brings it into a, a separate sense of life which is a constant behind the scenes of inspiration of ideas or and, and I think that's whereas this yeah, book it's is like twisting a kaleidoscope with him isn't it you've got the thing that you can see and then he, yeah, yeah, he just yeah. and you, you're like wait what wait what wait what and it just keeps changing yes but I think uh, but Jeremy on the radio so I mean the, the new the news quiz or for example which a lot of people know him from so the news quiz quite often sort of falls into two halves or two parts. There's the part that's the bit about the news that everybody knows about. So if it's this week, it's like Donald Trump's finally leaving and whatever the latest sort of COVID disaster or whatever, that is the news and people listen to it for that. And then the last 10 minutes is really people larking. I would, I, if I'm on it, I never prepare anything for the second half of it because i think no it's best improvised really and that's it will start off a story about a, i don't know a pig got on a bus in bloody macrosphere or something and um and then jeremy would be extraordinarily funny and mischievous and 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 i think that again i think that the sort of there's a that both on the left and the right, there's a people on the right, obviously they would dislike Jeremy for this, and on the left they loved him for it. But And I think both sections of people just seeing it as sort of a political diatribe completely missed the sort of sense. If you listen to Jeremy on the second half of the news quiz, you would not have any idea, really, that he was someone that had any political opinions. He would be brilliantly, hilariously funny and quite a decent mimic as well. And um, uh, about just utterly ludicrous things and extraordinarily rude, but in a very, very warm way, you know, because people know that you know, it, it comes out of affection. Like with Andy Hamilton, I remember Andy got something wrong once on the news quiz. He just got something wrong a couple of times. I think it was when he was reading something out at the end. And Jeremy went into this extraordinary, kept it going for about 10 minutes of going, don't worry, Andy. Don't worry. I know you're at the end, but it's okay. 
You can don't have to read it out. Don't bother. Just let it go. We're all here. And it was just this mate, and it was so horrible because he was actually sort of pretending that Andy was a had about a minute to live. <laughs> and he kept it going for so long. And uh, it was just a brilliant improvised performance, really. It was so, so funny. And I think, you know, you have to take people as a job lot, don't you? And I think that was that was as much part of Jeremy as when he was doing a really brilliant, incisive sort of 10 minutes about the, you know, the, the implications of the latest, um, the latest announcements on the Argentine economy or whatever. Well, it was because he was... He was my one of my first favourite live stand-ups. So when I started going to the clubs when I was a teenager, the two people that I'd look in the listings magazines to see where they were on were Phil Cornwall, the impressionist who went on to Stella Street, because it was just amazing. Right. And then years later, you know, he just so full on and then and Jer- yeah. but Jeremy was the one I think it must be one of the first or second times that I went to one of the old comedy stores and there he was in his suit and and he did seem to arrive to me now looking back that there was something fully formed I mean I think you and him mm. and Linda and Ver- to me that second wave of alternative comedy is kind of the first wave of stand-up like you had people like Rick Mel, Nade Edmondson and, and people doing you know that that's not necessarily stand-up so much that's a different kind of of of, of art to, mm. to me that the live stuff they did and then in this it was in the second wave that I felt the, the more fully formed kind of stand-up voices came out in in the in the mid-80s yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's, that's true, because it was about 84, I think, that Jeremy started. I, mean, right, I think that if you were to sort of, I remember seeing him in this little tiny church in Edinburgh first when I saw him. So he'd have been about 23 at the time. And he was, um, and then he would have been stuff that I, you know, really could have, he could quite easily have still been doing 30 years later. He had a lot of brilliant thing about being, being, being lower middle class in Surrey. And I'm, I'm sure, sure this was in the first gig that I ever saw him do. It was about, so for example, um, on my birthday, my father would just knock on the door and um, say, as it's your birthday, I have brought you a fountain pen in order that you may be able to keep a diary like Sir Samuel Pepys. Enjoy the rest of the day. I remember doing that. I saw him in about 23 at the time. And... Uh, and and that, you know, that's brilliant stand-up, isn't it? Because not always the case, but one of the brilliant things about stand-up is you you learn more in a, in a seeing a few jokes from a comic about someone's life, you learn as much as you can from a, a novel sometimes. And that, you know, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, if that was a novel, you'd go, right, I know this character now. I know where you come from. I know what your family background is. I know an enormous amount from about you from that little tiny 30 second joke I just remember the excitement of, you know, and also hoping there were certain routines that I hoped he'd do every time. That's what I forget now, because I always feel you've got to change yeah, material. Yeah. But I, I, for some reason, I used to love his one about the school bully Guido, who uh, the reason that snails don't have any legs is because his ancestors pulled them all off. And I remember there was a whole <laughs> thing. I, I just used to, you know, and I remember, in fact, the first time that I, when, when I saw his solo show in Edinburgh, and I, uh, I bought, I still have it, I bought a poster. He was selling posters, signed posters, and, and the, the quid would go to... Uh, the Terence, I think it was Terence Higgins Trust, or it might have been the Lighthouse, one, one of the, right. the uh, HIV yeah. and AIDS charities. And it was just like, 
that. And I remember saying, oh, why didn't you do the Guido routine? It was like, you know, I've got other things to do as well. <laughs> you know, that, but that, that excitement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Do you remember, Natalie, for you, with that stand-up where when you first got an inkling that it would be something that you own? I know obviously now you know, you're know you you're a writer and perform stand-up for the classics and you probably wouldn't define yourself as a stand-up so much I now. wouldn't because it seems rude to me. I, I find it really difficult because I know people are trying to be mm, um, inclusive of of all the things I have done in, as, as a grown-up to pay the bills, when they go, oh, yeah, comedian. And I just think, I'm not, though. It's so rude when there are... I realise that comedian comedians can't tour at the moment. But as a general rule, they have... I. It was my life for a decade. I remember how hard it was. It seems to me really... I don't know. I feel like I'm wearing the wrong shoes or something. But at the same time, if somebody you know, doesn't know that about, I feel really like, how can you not know this about this? It's as intrinsic as the color of my eyes or my height or something. Of course I'm funny, what's wrong with you? So I feel really um, uncertain about where I fit. So when people ask about Stand Up for the Classics, which obviously has the word stand up in the title, I always feel obliged to say it looks like stand up, but it, it isn't, you know, to the untrained eye, it absolutely looks like it because people come to a theater and they hear me doing a monologue to a microphone to an audience of people who are laughing. But the idea that I could have done 20 minutes on Lucian on the comedy store on a Friday night is frankly, yeah, and but you don't know. like, oh yeah, did you used to do a lot of classics in your stand-up year? Yeah. No, of course I didn't. Stand-up doesn't have to be at the comedy store to be stand-up. I... Oh my God, when they start, you know, Shut your fucking wanker! To reply in Latin would be quite class. Yeah, I suppose so, but I'm not sure how far it would have got me. Um, in the end, <laughs> I think probably denial was the best thing. No, I wouldn't advise it. But yeah, I don't know. I I think that that period because I started a bit after you, Robin, didn't I? You were yeah, you know, a few on years the circuit after, yeah. when I was a student. Um, so I kind of got onto the circuit in about ninety seven, ninety eight, something like that. Um, and so I still feel like I have a lot of the same yeah values is that what I want to say I suppose mm -hmm. of of our bit of the circuit I guess which I, I see in retrospect I was part of although at the time I didn't really know enough about it to know you know which gang I'd kind of picked but I still feel really self-conscious about repeating material I still feel really bad about it and people will ask when I do talks now and obviously this year being as it is I've now done roughly I would say 400 zoom talks about Pandora's jar and before that 400 zoom talks about a thousand ships and people will ask in the questions for me to talk about a thing that I know they've heard me talk about before I'm like but you'll have heard me say it before which to me is still in my 90s stand-up brain I'm like Surely you need new stuff. I don't want you to think I've only got five. I need to 10 next week. I need that other booking. And actually, of course, people like, to them, it's like a song. You know, they want to hear it again. I think you've got the best of all worlds, Natalie. I think you're fine. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, no, I'll stay here. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Condeed for me. Because I think that, I think that the, the sort of drive to be a, a, a stand-up is not healthy. It's... it's uh, it's an illness, you know. I mean, I, I remember Jeremy. Jeremy said to me, "What, what turned out to be probably about two years, three, two and a half years before he died." And um, he was saying that 
he said, when I'm sort of backstage at somewhere like Monmouth's coming to my mind for a reason I'll say like, but the Savoy Theatre in Monmouth, which is, you know, this is not little, t- I think Jeremy, or, or, Jeremy had no idea quite how well known he was really. And he would dismiss this as, oh, my stupid little tiny art centres. But if you do Monmouth, that's three or four hundred seats. This is the big theatre in the town. It's quite a big place and he would sell it out. And uh, he said, oh, when I'm somewhere like that and I'm backstage and I'm just thinking what I'm going to do and what order I'm going to do it and it's 40 minutes before I'm going on. And he said, that's when I'm really, truly happy. That's when I'm me. That's when I think I'm doing what I'm meant to do. And I think that is the thing with a with stand-up. It's, a, it's an addiction, really. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, Jeremy... Jeremy definitely had that, I think. Yeah, I know what you mean because I I feel the same when I'm. Oh, do you? When I'm prepping notes for a live show, right. I did one last year, obviously after March, um, mm. at Cheltenham in October, and so it was the only proper show that I did for for the new book. And so that kind of yeah, that forty minutes beforehand where you're like, well, okay, I've got an hour. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't talked about this book before. Not going to get to do it again. Let's see what happens. Uh, and they're filming it. Perfect. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and, and yet, I don't think... And I'm crying on stage. I, just doing the sound check makes me cry. I'm so emotional to be back in a theatre, back on a stage. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got face masks on, which I've convinced myself will make it unplayable because I won't be able to see their appreciation and mm-hmm. they won't be able to make a noise. Because, and then they're laughing properly and you can see their eyes are laughing and it was just beautiful and incredibly emotional and I kind of think I've, I quit Marcus Brigstock said this to me when I quit uh, you know whenever it was and said that's it I'm done I'm never performing again he was like you'll be back no one ever it's like the, <laughs> it's like the Roach Motel you can check in you can't check out like, oh okay and of course he was right I think within two years of quitting stand-up I just started doing you know talks which were funny and in theatres and looked a lot like stand up to the untrained eye. Yeah, there's not that much of a demarcation really necessarily between um, stand up and being funny while talking about uh, other subjects. You know, you, uh, um, I think that's a very British, that's a very British thing. And that, well, maybe that's worth talking. Oh, I should, must just search to why Monmouth come into my mind before I sort of uh, move on to the far more erudite point. But it might be. But he he said he said to me, he rang me actually from that night, and he went, oh god, he said he was in, and of course he said it in this big moany way, and he said um, he was so he was backstage in his dressing room there, and it's a very old theatre, the Savoy Theatre at Monmouth, and uh, a rat came in, a rat came into the dressing room, and scuttled off, and then the bloke who runs it come in and went, uh, everything all right, does it, Jeremy? And he said, well, no, there's, there's a rat. The rat just come in. And he said, and the bloke just went, oh, he's back, is he? And just walked out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's an interest because sometimes you, you hear these things about the uh, the bitterness and the hatred amongst comedians and all that. Kind of, and having also, like all of us, gone into quite a few different worlds of entertainment. See, I think we're the least awful. I actually think yeah, that comics yeah, yeah. are that there's something and it might be that might also just be because of the people that I hang around with. But it's a reasonably broad selection where you just go. No, in fact, there's a, a point with most of the comics that I know where 
an acceptance of our own stupidity, foibles, absurdism, and all of those things kicks in in a way that I don't necessarily see when you go to a festival and you go, oh, there's a lot of literary authors here, uh, and you know, there's uh, and and so I th- I think it's quite that that bit where you all meet up. We mentioned benefits before that excitement. Even when we were doing that show, Mark, on Christmas Eve, where obviously we weren't all together, but we were doing a show where Mark Thomas mm. had different comics popping up and talking about their favourite Christmas songs. There was almost that sense that we were back in a dressing room waiting to go on to you know do a benefit for a new stair carpet for the lyric hammersmith or whatever it is and that kind of that's an, an interesting yeah. camaraderie of predominantly isolated people yeah 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 i mean i just yes exactly i, I think if i sort of so return to jeremy's sort of position if you like of where he came where he arrived at and from so I, at the time, and this is easy, so easy to forget now. So at the, back in 84, 85, when Jeremy started, the, at that point, this is so, you know, I mean, my son does stand up. It's very difficult. It, it would be very difficult for him to understand. But at that point, almost everybody, if you suggested you were a stand up, assumed that you were someone who told a series of jokes like what stand-up was in Britain up until the sort of early 1980s entirely. And what we know as stand-up hadn't come to replace that yet. So stand-up was people just the old-fashioned stand-up. And Jeremy was sort of really in the early days of that when he started as being, I'm going to do stand-up and I'm going to talk about my life and tell, talk, tell stuff that is about me and my ideas and opinions and thoughts and so on. That was very, very early on. And there were very few people who, in fact, probably I'm not sure anyone really who's, who then, you know, by the late 1980s, Jeremy was doing his own show. I mean, that show when you saw him at the Heriot, what, I think he won the Perrier Award that year. And he was standing there and just giving his opinions on the world for an hour every night. And uh, that was very, very new in this country. People did it in America, and that's partly where we got the idea. You know, we saw we saw Richard Pryor film and so on. Thought, wow, what is that? So I remember seeing that and thinking, what is that? I loved it, but I didn't. I thought, what is it? What is it? He's done. It's not stand up. I must have been about seventy nine, and I couldn't work out what was it meant to be. It wasn't a play. Because people hadn't worked it out at all there. So Jeremy sort of came, was in, in really in a very, very early point at all that, really, turn, turning it into something where he conveyed his, not just his ideas, but his sort of view of the world. Because, uh, uh, because oh, sorry to go on a long, long time, but as well as the words that he said, also there was the manner in which he said it, that he conveyed this sort of slightly misinformation weary sort of view, wander on in a cardigan. Uh, I mean, quite deeply, whether he knew it was deliberate or not, but it was, he would wander on. All oh, right, here we are. Well, how are we doing? Oh, God. And that sort of, that world-weary way of looking at the world, it was a magnificent portrayal, really, of a sort of, you know, in much the way that Hancock, if you look at old Hancock programmes, I don't know if you really laugh that much now. If you saw, yeah, you know, I wouldn't. I don't think. I think it's brilliant, but I don't think I would laugh if I saw a Hancock programme from 1960. 
But I would go, oh, that is a brilliant portrayal of a certain sort of person at a certain point in British history. And I think Jeremy was very similar. Natalie, I'm just thinking, when, did your did your mum, for instance, know that you were into comedy? Because I was thinking of, of books that I would probably have got Jeremy Hardy, you know, speaks, had I been a teenager, the kind of teenager that I was in, in, in the 80s, you know, I always used to get books, some terrible books, some terrible TV spin-off books with where the comic has just done a photo session and some hack has just written some captions yeah, and then also yeah. some brilliant books as well, you know, for me. It was, did you ever have any of those moments, Natalie? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Joan Rivers, I think was um, there were was it Enter Talking was her autobiography and you know I, the kind of stand up that she does or did I should say um, was so was actually kind of in an in between category of what we're talking about because they're all gags and yet at the same time I think you walked out of the room knowing exactly who she was right um, it, and and they were just so impressive you know the the complete refusal to to allow reality and sadness to stop her making jokes. It's like, well, it really made me see that terrible things sometimes happen to people who are funny. And at that point, they're going to have to find a way of processing it and probably right. by still being funny. And I certainly wouldn't argue for Joan Rivers being a nice person. I wouldn't dream of it. But I would suggest that um, there is something extraordinary to me still now about a woman whose husband commits suicide um, and who walks on stage and, and whose opening gag is, I knew I shouldn't have taken the bag off my head when we were having sex. And you go, wait, what now? <laughs> what did you just say? And that kind of extra, where you're, you're just, you're braced with the shock of it. Where you're like, I can't believe yes. you yes. said that. This horrific incident. And then I think it's very tempting for people who don't think very hard about comedy to say, well, she was a horrible person because she had these views or those views, or because she could be so heartless about something like that. I think it takes a, it takes a really kind of willful way of looking at someone who is funny for a living to suggest that when they make a joke about something, they're making light of it. She wasn't. She was ah, like, yes. No, professional no, attention. You can't take it more seriously than that. No, 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 no. Exactly. No, that is, I think that is, uh, that is the sort of, the comment that sums it all up now, I think it's sort of, I think it's only in certain, it's in certain quarters, you still get that view of, but this is a serious subject. It can't be a, 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 an appropriate subject for comedy. Mm. And, uh, and it's very, very, very frustrating. It's, you know, you will sort of hear it sometimes on radio four or something, someone will be interviewed and asked that. And that's a very, very old fashioned view of comedy and shows how the the low esteem in which stand up is is still held by certain people that because you would never say that of any other discipline you wouldn't say that suicide isn't something that you would really write a novel about really or write a song about or a play about or a painting it's but stand up is still seen by some people as being the lowest form of communication and therefore it's only appropriate for doing a joke about what a bee does when it goes back i feel very strongly about this because i don't mm. think I, I mean lovely as it is to have you know beautiful absurdist jokes on good days i don't really feel like i need comedy on those days i like it but i don't need yeah, it yeah, i need yeah. comedy on the dark days and i yes. always needed it on the dark days and i think it's cathartic yeah. elements are really under 
underestimated by people way, way too often. I, you know, I know I'm the worst. I'm like poacher turned gamekeeper because I used to be a stand up and I moved to writing really sad novels. <laughs> so I, I do understand that I'm not the best person to make this argument. And yet, um, you know, the, Aristotle understood that there were two routes to catharsis in terms of oh, right. comedy and tragedy. And in his poetics, we've still got the bit on tragedy that survives. And the half that was written on comedy doesn't survive. The, the search for it is the MacGuffin in the novel, The Name of the Rose, the Umberto Eco novel, right. The Name of the Rose. But I genuinely believe that if we had Aristotle's assessment of comedy, in which he would have very, very seriously and unhumorously picked it apart and looked at it as a philosopher, I think people would take it more seriously now. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Aristotle took it seriously. Why the hell wouldn't we? I still think it's I'm the best tackle put to because I'm I'm a fan of Aristotle. And Good. About twenty billion times more about it than I do. Oh well, then I'm going to recommend a book to you if you haven't read it since it's book shambles, and that is Aristotle's Way by Professor Edith Hall, which is completely brilliant. Um, okay. And a I sort will. of uh, a kind of um, a guide to Aristotle's life, but also a kind of um, incredible guided tour through the Nicomachean ethics, which makes it sound boring, which it literally never is. Um, but it's just wonderful. It's I super the, accessible, I super love brainy. I've become very fond of him. But, I, I did one of the lecture programs about him on the telly, and, I, and I've become very fond of him looking at Aristotle. Because I thought uh, one of the things I loved about it was that that he, unlike in the modern world, everything is connected to him. So he wouldn't have seen a demarcation between politics and ethics and art and geography that you can't understand one unless you understand how they all connect together with the others if i'm if that makes any, any sense if that does that sound about right yeah he's an obsessive so, cataloger i think so he's always there yes. going i'm really interested in animals and politics and yeah, moral philosophy and he wants all of them and they're all everything is you're right everything is related yeah yeah everything's, everything's linked connected. well and sport he compiled a list of all the uh, winners of the olympic games i think I seem to remember him doing a joke of him sat with Plato going, go on in, I'll show you on the pole vault is 400 BC. <laughs> there, yeah. there is no, and, and that's almost the difference between the old thing, which I've, I've harped on about so many times, George Carlin's difference between a comic and a comedian, Yeah, which is kind of, with a, with a comic, you have no idea, as, as you were saying, Natalie, about Joan Rivers, you know, you do get, even though they're jokes, you get a sense, or Jerry Sadovitz would be an example. Yeah. There's a lot more. If you see those written on a page, disconnected yeah. from the performance and the psychology of that person. Yeah, yeah, they just seem like can seem like bad taste jokes, but there's a whole lot more when you actually see them performed and they're connected to different things. And I think that's an important but like Joan Rivers I really is, like that distinction between comic and comedian. I don't make it, but I will now, I think. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. So which is the which is the thoughtful one? The then? comic tells gags and the comedian is um the person. Yeah, I got oh, that I right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you yeah. watch someone, and, and nearly all my, in fact, I, I can't really think of anyone who's one of my favourite comedians who doesn't have that to an extent. You know, even even you know someone like Ken Dodd, those aren't just jokes. You know what? When you the mere fact that he has yeah, to keep yeah. you there for nine hours has you know had a great deal of kind of psychology. There's a lot more to it than just seeing that. I remember I think Alexi Sale talked about when he did OTT. Uh, the, the the adult version of Tiz was and getting a cab back from the studio studio in Birmingham with uh, like an old style club comic and I think he yes. pretty much said to Alexi so what are you do you do patter or shaggy dog you know that was kind of all there was is it patter I think it was Carson wasn't it might have been if yeah right yeah and I remember yeah so and he sort of well there's someone who's really interested Frank Carson was really interested in chap who was in the army and then I think become disillusioned with it and 
was living in Northern Ireland, obviously, and was a really thoughtful bloke. Had millions of fascinating things to say and would say millions of fascinating things and then would go on stage and drop it all and just tell jokes. And he was very good at telling jokes, but that's all he did. And that's, in a way, that's not his fault. That's the times in which he lived was one in which if you were going to make a living as a comic, you know, I suspect someone like Frank Carson, if he was around now, would probably learn to make something of his own experiences. I like the fact that he did have that real gag reflex. I remember doing a show where I was doing a bit on the show and also doing warm-up. I was doing a bit where I used to have to be John Peel and then they said, oh, you could do the warm-up tonight, but we're doing the bigger studio. So I was trying to do warm-up while dressed in flares with a false beard that was kind of slowly peeling off from the glue. And Frank Carson was on, and Frank Carson couldn't resist, but constantly, he just came on the whole time. He was only doing a five-minute yeah, yeah. guest spot, but he had to. The audience were there. I want to make them laugh. Whereas there's other people, yeah. and, and you know, in, in yeah, all yeah. the different circuits that exist now, well, what's the money? No, I've been paid for five minutes. That's what I'm doing. And that, I think, is one of the differences. You know, when you used to turn up to clubs and they'd say, I, I know you booked for 20, but do you mind doing 40? And you think, well, I've, I've got to Scarborough now. Of course I'll yeah. do 40. In fact, I'll do 50. Yeah, In fact, yeah, I'll do yeah, an yeah. hour. You you tell me when when I have to come off because I'm here. So don't uh, – no, I'm sorry. Yeah. It says 20 minutes. That's that's what you're getting. The alarm goes and I'm off. And I think that, that – But I always thought we were being paid for the travel and the gig we did for free, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, just yeah. like a bone. You Oh no, fine. I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you? Well, I think probably, I think probably most gigs that you do in the first five years, at least, you would probably be paid more if you were just went to the same place to deliver a part. I had a, a <laughs> theory when I was on the circuit at the beginning that if we could, if we could just make it work, in which all these comedians were driving around the country at any given time, if we just also had a parcel, I think all novelists should also <laughs> dog walk. Because you need to go out for a walk to clear your mind. And I think all comedians should simultaneously be running a delivery service. I have a brilliant knock on the theatre door. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Swap this, mate. <laughs> that is a, that click and collect now, idea want, of comedy. 20 minutes. That is great. In fact, Mark, isn't that how you started? You used to deliver parcels, didn't you? And then uh, if they were disappointed yeah, yeah, yeah. with the DVD that you delivered, know, you had to then, do a routine, yeah. didn't you? And FedEx were absolutely insistent they had to read that you had to do a joke with FedEx in the punchline but you know I come up with quite a few different ones and uh, one day I just happened to do to deliver a, a set of uh, of um, uh, maggots for fishing to someone who was uh, who booked booked all, all the local comics at the, at the gig in the theatre in Skelmersdale so I moved up there and i for the first two years, that's why I used to do a regular slot there. Well, I remember there was a bidding war between DHL and Parcel Line for you uh, in the late eighties. Yeah. Um, we better yeah, stop. Well, DHL were more shaggy dogs. <laughs> are you a pattern Parcel was... man or are you a shaggy dog yeah. Parcel man? Which, um, thank you both for for joining. Uh, Natalie has said Natalie Haynes' uh, book Pandora's Jar and uh, and Thousand Ships, of course, which is d- d- done remarkably well as well. And uh, wherever you're listening to this, it's probably available. It's been. It's out in America next week. So yes. Which is, ooh, ooh, and in uh, Italy this week, next week, I've lost track. But there it's called The Song of Calliope. Brilliant. And and Mark, you, uh, I'm trying to, the, the, what's your most recent book? Oh, fuck knows. <laughs> I've got a, the run of Bean book is, is, is probably impossible to get. And then I did a book called Reasons to be Cheerful and a book about the French Revolution. So Reasons to be Cheerful was written about 2001. And it's sort of uh, it's uh, it's the story of just being being sort of vaguely on the on, 
on the left over all, all that time and having played an insignificant part in all of the major events like a sort of left wing forest gump uh and yeah and i enjoyed i, I enjoyed that very much writing that one i'm proud of that one but the um I, you know, at the moment about the my extraordinary adoption story that's it would be criminal if i managed to make that boring then i really should be barred from ever writing a word about anything again i've been blessed with this utterly utterly absurd story well i've got to say that you know i remember where i was when i found out that um elvis presley died where rick mail died and i remember where i was when i spoke to you on the phone and you told me that that remarkable story i was on colchester uh station platform uh off to go and do a gig in liverpool and as you told me that remarkable story so anyone who doesn't know about it also it might still be is it on bbc sounds maybe the show you did about it it might be yes yes but that's sort of yes i'm about i don't know what stage I am you know well you've both written books you know what stage am I at I'm I've written 60,000 words I don't know what that where where I am yeah three quarters two-thirds maybe yeah I wish someone had told me that when I wrote my 170,000 word book which I'm still you have a problem (laughs) (laughs) it's the belief that you know, oh, I won't even go into it, but it's that bit where you just presume all of it's rubbish. But if you write enough, eventually there'll be something good in it. Whereas, you know, the more confident people realise that, you know, just have good sentences. Well, this sentence might be rubbish, but if I put another 12,000 sentences like that, just by sheer chance, some of them might be entertaining. I don't know. Um, I think it's because you keep typing when I just stare at the screen. So, you know, what I mean? when I'm there, like, oh, maybe if I stare at this for long enough, this sentence won't suck really. Yes, bad. I can imagine that. I can imagine you, Natalie, or then, or then going off to read something in the original. I, that's literally what I'm surrounded by. That's what you can't see. But yeah, I'm surrounded by. Yesterday, I fell down the rabbit hole of volume two of the lost plays yeah. of greek tragedy by matthew wright and you can see yeah. i read them with great care and tag all the pages because they're important to me but yeah it's yeah it's a constant challenge to actually do the writing what I've got. oh mark's gonna find oh, his yeah. uh here's my ones here's what i'm reading for it nature versus nurture oh matt biography of tiny roland yeah and the biography of kerry packer there you go yeah, Jeremy Hardy speaks volumes. That's the uh, which I think is out in in paperback now. And uh, as yes, as we said, is. really does. There's so many beautiful phrases in it, and, and, and wonderful routines, and a lot of people's uh, excellent memories as well of, uh, of of working with Jeremy and going on the road with Jeremy and all of those other things. So uh, so that's available now. As I said, I think in paperback. Jeremy Hardy speaks volumes. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for all our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Natalie. Thank you to Mark. And uh, we'll uh, be back next week with another book shambles and so will Josie thank you for having me thanks so much see you soon thank you very much for listening remember rate and review uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Acast and Spotify and all the other places that you might listen to this podcast patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show and get extended editions of the episode and tips for existence and an uncanny hour and all of the other stuff Have a great week, stay safe, and we will see you next Thursday. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.